You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi, I'm Steph Tiller. In this episode of our Bigger Picture series, Alex Bristow and Jennifer Parker from Aspie's Defence Strategy and National Security Program sit down to discuss the upcoming OSMIN meeting in Brisbane. They discuss the significance of this year's meeting being held against the backdrop of the largest ever iteration of Exercise Talisman Sabre and explore some of the key outcomes they expect from the meeting. They also discuss the expansion of the Alliance discussions to include critical and emerging technologies and climate change, as well as the role that statecraft will play in this year's ambitious agenda. Finally, they provide insight into what topics might be discussed behind closed doors. Jen, you've been at Aspie getting on for three months now, I think, and I think this is our first podcast together, despite us working uh, so closely on a day-to-day basis. I'm really looking forward to this. I think we've obviously both just done pieces on the forthcoming OSMIN meeting, uh, the meeting of the 2 plus 2 between Defence and Foreign Ministers to be taking place in Brisbane we think this weekend we're still waiting for the precise date to be officially announced and uh, we've got pieces in the strategist you're covering the defense angles and uh, i'm covering the foreign policy angles so uh, looking forward to this discussion i wondered if we might start off i think we've, we've been doing some cribbing on the background of of osmin how long has this been going for yeah look thanks alex great to be here and you mentioned three months when today is three month donut day so we are celebrating three months with donuts look osmin's really interesting it's been going since 1985 a couple of years missed but generally fairly consistently since 1985 generally the frequency is every 12 months but not always and i know that some commentators in the lead up to this osmin have talked about the fact that last osmin was actually only in december 22 and read a lot into that i don't think there's too much we can read into that i think it occurs when they can get the principles in a room. And obviously, Talisman Sabre 23, which I'll talk to a little bit more later in this, a really great platform to be hosting Osmin. So I think that's probably uh, dictated the timing. Great. Maybe we should stick on those defence components uh, to start off with. So you mentioned Talisman Sabre already. Is that on a, on a scale or is that sort of doing things this year that are particularly novel? It is, actually. So I think there's a lot to talk about in the US-Australia defence relationship uh, and a lot of significant things that have occurred since the last Osmin, one of which is obviously the commencement of Talisman Sabre a few days ago on the 22nd of July, significant opening ceremony, 30,000 participants, which is the biggest Talisman Sabre ever. Uh, And Talisman Sabre itself has been around for about 17 years. But I think what is really significant is actually the number of countries participating in Talisman Sabre. So the background to Talisman Sabre, it is a bilateral exercise between the US and Australia. A number of years ago, they started to open it up to other countries to participate. But this year, we have 11 other participants, and a number of which are participating for for the first time. Um, And linking it back to OSMIN, one of the key announcements from OSMIN 22 was actually the significant Pacific participation for Talisman Sabre 23. So it does set a significant backdrop for this kind of iteration of the discussion around the relationship. Oh, fantastic. And I assume those uh, 11 participating nations don't include the Chinese surveillance ships that every, the media is uh, closely tracking somewhere off Queensland shore. Yes, um, I think it's fair to say that the Chinese Navy are an uninvited guest 
but not unique. So this is pretty common. The first time, I think, was 2017 iteration of Talisman Sabre where China sent surveillance ships to monitor the exercise. It's also not unique to Talisman Sabre. So RIMPAC, the biggest exercise or biggest naval exercise in the world involving a plethora of nations run by the US in Hawaii uh, every two years, it is pretty common these days to see a Chinese surveillance ship surveilling RIMPAC as well. There's been quite a lot of big defence announcements this year involving the the US and Australia. So I I kind of wonder what could possibly be left in the magazine. That's about as good as my defence metaphors get, I'm afraid. Should we expect any sort of big initiative to be announced this Osman, do you think? Yeah, look, there have been some significant announcements. You know, we talked before about the fact that the last Osmin was only seven months ago, but a lot has changed in the last seven months. So obviously the submarine optimal pathway, which was announced earlier this year, has been significant for the relationship between the US and Australia, of course, the UK as well. There has been a lot of discussion in the US Congress about the release of Virginia-class capabilities to Australia in the 2030s. There's also been a lot of announcements around US-Australia force posture initiatives, which was a key theme coming out of Osmin 22. So I think there is a lot happening. Will there be big announcements from this Osmin? Probably not. I think, you know, this is probably more on your side of the area, but I think there are some some statecraft aspects of that, you know, it sounds like it's likely that Anthony Albanese is probably going to go to the US later in the year. Unfortunately, Joe Biden didn't make it here in May for the Quad. Given that, my gut feel is that some of those announceables will be held for that. But I think also this Osmin will probably have a lot of closed door conversations because I think there is a lot of things to discuss from a defence perspective. What are you thinking from a foreign policy perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously one of the interesting things about Osmin generally this time round is it's it's kind of um, snuck up on us because there's usually enough of a, a buzz around when it's going to be that most of the journalists in town will sort of have a fair idea ahead of time. I haven't really got the sense that people knew that it was going to be tied to Talisman Sabre in this way uh, and taking place at this time. There has been, of course, an official announcement that Austin and, and Blinken are coming. But even the announcement, I don't think, gave a precise date, which had us slightly scratching our heads. Um, I think we've plumped for Saturday, the the 29th of July, on the the basis that I I know that Anthony Blinken's landing in Brisbane on the 28th. But maybe by the time this podcast's there, that'll be cleared up. But just even little things like that, just the, the fact that the precise date wasn't revealed in the press release and that the press release seemed to be the first that many people in town had heard of it, is a little bit different this year, which sort of does make you wonder whether... All the uh, the normal kind of working up processes have gone through the normal channels that they would to to get to a, a big event like an Osmin. I mean, if you look at the the joint communique from from last year, it's got five substantive chapters to it. They're covering a lot of areas. They they cover climate. They cover emerging technology. Other areas. All of those one would expect would have official processes leading up and drafting all that language ahead of time. All of that must have happened this time as well, of course, but. Normally, that that bureaucratic weight would generate enough of a buzz around town that we'd get a bit of a, a better sense of what's coming up. Uh, so, so you know, it is a little bit more of a blank page this time round. We do know from the the announcement that um, has been put out by the by the Australian side by by Miles and Wong. We do know that there's going to be an expansion of the the alliance to include technology, emerging technology, as well as green transition, so the climate angle, and also critical technologies. 
that's not wholly new. Actually, if you look back at the, the statement last time round, there was an expansion into climate areas very clearly in that. And that was, of course, a reflection of the Labour government coming in and, and being a bit more willing to lean in on those climate issues. We've had, of course, the, the meeting between Biden and Albanese, where they've spoken about climate becoming the third pillar of the alliance alongside the security and the economic dimensions. So this is is well signposted. It does open questions about whether this format, the two plus two format, having foreign defence ministers next to each other, is actually going to cover the right portfolios to really make progress on some of these issues. And the concept of statecraft says that you do need to be able to join the dots in this way. So I think it, it does make logical sense. This is an extension of statecraft to have these important areas that do reflect national power and influence, you know, notably areas like critical technologies and critical minerals definitely have national power and influence implications. It does make sense to have those joined up in a statecraft way, but can we expect Penny Wong and Anthony Blinken to be able to pull all the levers backing in their respective capitals to actually deliver on whatever's going to be in the communique? There was quite a lot in the last communique, and I'm not sure we've got a, a clear sense of whether it was all delivered last time round. So that's a big question for me. Uh, is this going to potentially run into the bureaucratic sand? So that's really fascinating, actually, because you talked about, you know, the normal lead up, you know, a significant body of work towards it, which which may well happen, but it has seemed to feel like it's, it's caught people by surprise. The last one was only seven months ago. Do you get a sense that there'll be more of a foreign policy flavour to this iteration of Osmin 23? I note that both Blinken and Austin are not only coming to Australia in the region, so I think Austin also has quite an ambitious program in the Pacific as well, which potentially gives a gives a key to some of the thinking, certainly from a defence perspective. Osmin 22 did focus on Pacific elements. Um, are you getting a sense of that? Yeah, definitely. So uh, Blinken's arriving from the Pacific where he's opening up a new embassy and then he's coming through New Zealand where he's uh, going to catch a, a game in the, the FIFA Women's World Cup. And so he's actually spending some time in, in the Pacific area before he comes to to Australia. I think that bodes well and it'll also be something that's going to be a discussion point when when he gets to to the meetings in Brisbane. And of course, the format is not just the plenary two plus twos where you've got all four principals in the room at the same time and in the press conference and the joint communique that goes with it. There's also side meetings where the two counterparts will sort of break off and go into more specifics relevant to their their brief. And I think Miles and uh, Austin, are, you, you'll be closer to this than I am, but they're travelling up to uh, North Queensland, aren't they, for the Talisman Saver part. Is foreign policy going to come to the fore? I mean, I, I think I'd go back to the statecraft term that... If we're expanding the alliance to include a whole range of issues, including on economic and environmental concerns, technology, which obviously crosses over to areas like education, then there's not even a, a, a traditional conception of foreign policy, really. It's an expanded one. So I do think that um, maybe moving from the concept of foreign policy to one of statecraft is, is a useful way of of looking at the ambition of this this Osmin. And, and, and Osmin is referred to in one of the press releases as the... I think the mechanism for guiding the alliance, which is quite a lot of burden for this format to to carry. I mean, there is obviously the, the summit level engagement in the alliance, but it's it's clearly framed in the press release the Australian side's put out that, that Osman is the primary mechanism. So there's a lot of burden on it and, and a lot of expectations, perhaps. It's difficult for me to think what's going to be coming out in terms of concrete initiatives. I think we can expect something in the climate change space. I think... You know, I think what's been signalled, there will be something around around critical minerals. I know that Aspie has been pretty engaged on that brief. We had uh, Madeline King in Darwin for our uh, Darwin Dialogue 
on critical minerals not that long ago. And uh, I think there's clearly a lot of work that's been going on in government that can be drawn on in that space. So I think we, we will see a few a few concrete initiatives. But uh, yeah, I, I think for me, it'll be interesting to see whether notably Wong comes to the fore in a sort of prominent role, sort of leading the statecraft agenda. Because if you go back to the the wording in the Defence Strategic Review, it clearly says that DFAT is tasked with leading a joined-up statecraft approach. Now, if you're in the US, that would probably be more the responsibility of the White House and the national security architecture and the obviously the national security strategy that's put out by each administration and binds all that together. So you've got quite a, a centralised architecture around the president that can do that in a US system. PM&C doesn't have those resources. It doesn't have a national security strategy. It has it has has national security mechanisms, but they're not as formalized or, or, or as well-resourced as, as those around the National Security Council in the US. So so it, it seems that the the weight of responsibility is moving to the foreign minister and it's moving to her department. And, you know, I'm just not sure that DFAT is, is adequately resourced or has the bureaucratic guns behind it to deliver on that sort of ambition. Yeah, no, it is a, it is a significant challenge. And, and I like the point that you made about the move towards the concept of statecraft, obviously featured prominently in the Defence Strategic Review, as did I think a number of things which I think will be on the table to discuss from a defence perspective. Obviously, the Defence Strategic Review, potentially quite a significant document for Australia. I think the, the proof will be in what comes next. But force posture initiatives with the US obviously featured prominently in that document as well. The 2022 communique from Osman really highlighted the need for the two countries to work together and a lot of aspirations around force posture initiatives, US bomber rotations. Um, obviously, since then, we've seen the conversations around the AUKUS optimal pathway and the US and, in fact, the UK submarine rotations through HMAS Sterling, which is the intent. So I do think that we'll see quite a focus on that from a from a defence perspective. But in terms of that concept of statecraft, I think there is some really interesting messaging. I think the timing is significant. So Talisman Sabre, you know, as we talked before, the biggest iteration of Talisman Sabre, not just in terms of size of troops, numbers of, you know, aircraft and ships, but also numbers of countries, I think that is aimed at very much sending a message about security in the region and is clearly a demonstration. Potentially, the discussions around Osmin being over the top of that is trying to reinforce that messaging. I get the sense that we'll probably see some messaging about you know, competition in the Indo-Pacific. What do you think some of the key lines on that might be? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously front and centre of some recent speeches, including Albanese's speech in Shangri-La dialogue. And before that, uh, and in many ways prefacing that, I think, a Penny Wong speech at the National Press Club, which was just before the the launch of the Defence Strategic Review, and I'm sure was was choreographed with that in mind. There was a focus not only on strategic competition, but what it means for this region in terms of the agency of smaller countries like Australia, you know, smaller in terms of geopolitical weight, countries of Southeast Asia, countries of the Pacific, having agency to actually influence this and not just seeing this as bystanders to some sort of inevitable clash that was going to occur between the superpowers of, of, of China and the US. So that concept of agency, I expect to be reflected in the rhetoric of this Osmin. I, I think the US will embrace that that concept, that, that, that other countries in the region have a strong stake in this. And also another buzzword, if you like, that's come across from those two speeches from Albanese and Wong is this concept of guardrails, which is obviously drawing 
a whole range of authors talk about it. And Kevin Rudd in, in his book before he became Australia's ambassador in Washington talks about it as well. And you know, that's a, a tricky one to put flesh on the bone. So guardrails, as I understand them, are mechanisms that allow for escalation to be controlled. Many of the scenarios would be ones that you'd be more familiar with from your career in the Navy, Jen. So I'll, I'll defer to you on these, but the sorts of things we see happening at sea, including recently with Canadian and US warships and Chinese warships in the Taiwan Strait, where something could go wrong and other sides able to talk to each other and make sure that if uh, there's a crash or an accident or a miscalculation, that it doesn't start to escalate and turn into, into a shooting war. And both Biden and Blinken have been clear in their recent engagements with the Chinese that they want the sorts of guardrails that existed during the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union to exist between the US and China. So those would include things like reliable hotlines where the leaders can talk to each other. They could include the restoration of military-military talks, which obviously the Chinese are withholding at the moment with the US. So the Americans have been clear they want them. The Chinese are playing a rhetorical game saying that they're interested in talking about it, but don't seem to be actually giving anything concrete. Where does that leave middle power agency? I think Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese have made, made clear that there's a stake for all countries in establishing these sorts of mechanisms. I think that's a conversation that wouldn't just be for foreign ministers. I think some of this is quite technical and it will need to be mill-mill talks. I'm sure you've got a view on how to achieve that. But it, yeah, I think it's some flesh needs to be put on the bones and maybe Osmin, particularly the closed door bits we don't get to hear about, is an opportunity to do some brainstorming on that. But w- what do you think it's sort of looking at some of these near misses we've had, notably in the maritime domain that, that you're so familiar with, what do you think we might actually need and might be practical to improve escalation control and, and, and manage risks? Yeah, look, it's it's a really interesting one and challenging. You know, I think it was around the time of the Shangri-La Dialogue, you know, approximately six to eight weeks ago, that we saw the situation where a Chinese, a PLA Navy vessel, cut directly in front of a US destroyer that was transiting through the, the Taiwan Strait. And, you know, the video shows quite a close call for that, which is concerning. I do think just from a from an Osmian communique perspective, I do think there will be some public facing commentary on some of those unsafe practices, which do seem to be increasing in frequency. And I agree with you. I think there'll need to be some closed door conversation about how you actually address them. I think China's been very clear on their position on mill to mill relationship with the US, which is which is unfortunate. I think we saw that bear out of the, the Shangri-La dialogue. But communication really is the only way to address some of these challenges. Um, so I think there'll be some public-facing commentary, but I think you're right. I think there'll be some closed-door discussion about how you can de-escalate some of those situations. I think while we're on the topic of defence, I think one of the other interesting things that will probably bear out, and I think a lot of defence industry will be keen to see, is some discussions around infrastructure. You know, a lot of the force posture initiatives rely on that joint agreement on infrastructure. So there's conversations about building out the Australian bear bases in the north and Tyndall is one that that comes up. And I think in my um, recent strategist article, I think I titled it, I should remember, but meat on the bones. Mm. And I think, you know, what I was trying to get at there is a lot of fantastic initiatives came out of Osmin 22, a number of great announcements. And look, I haven't gone back and compared every single Osmin communique, but I think it's probably one of the most significant ones since 1985, to be honest. But there is a feeling that a lot of those initiatives do need to be followed up with actual investment in infrastructure. So it'll be interesting to see if there's some more concrete 
advice on what will be happening there. And the other one that I think is, is quite interesting is GUI or, or Guided Weapons and Explosive Ordnance. I do think that will be a discussion. Whether it's a public-facing discussion, not sure. But certainly, you know, Australia has made very clear and signaled through the DSR and, in fact, the FSP. So full structure plan going back to 2020 that um, we do see having a sovereign guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise as key. And the relationship with the US is also key to that because a lot of the weapons that are used by the Australian forces are US weapons. So I think there will need to be some assistance and some discussion, some more discussion with the US on that. So hopefully that is a, a prominent feature of Osmin 23. Absolutely. I mean, I think that defence industry uh, component as well, will be interesting to see whether that barks at this, this Osmin. That's obviously essential to the delivery of many of the defence initiatives we have going, most obviously AUKUS, but, but much wider than that. Looking at what the Brits have recently been up to, they've just had a minister come through and almost sort of steal a bit of thunder by making uh, an announcement about potentially having British forces coming through Darwin. I'm not sure that's been accurately represented in the media, but he, he came came here off the back of a defence command paper that the uh, the UK government's just put out, which which front and centre has building that industrial base uh, shared across allies in it. So, you know, I, I think there's a whole range of partners that Australia has around the world, not just the US, where you need to be building this defence industry links. And I wonder whether Osmin is going to reflect that in some of the language and the communications we'll see coming out of it. Do you have a view on that one, Jen? Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. I I suspect it will. Um, I did read somewhere, and I I can't quite recall in the last 24 hours, that the US in their background briefing for Osmin had said, it's not about AUKUS, which I think is important because there are obviously three partners. But the industry discussion between collaboration, export controls and ITAR between the US and Australia is one that is obviously relevant to AUKUS, but also on a bilateral basis and, and has been for some time. So I, so I do think that that will be a key part of the conversation. That also links back to those discussions around infrastructure, force posture initiatives, you know, some of the key points from the 22 communique talked about the need for joint work on logistics and sustainment and maintenance. And all of those conversations can't happen without supporting industry and overcoming those barriers for Australian industry, US industry to work together. So I do think that'll be quite an important theme. Whether that's a theme in the public facing, yet to know. Well, we're probably running a little shy on time, but one thought that I would certainly think is perhaps worth pondering as we come to a close is what will be noticed if it's absent? So I think there is a tendency to almost do word count analysis on certain areas of the of the communique and, and Taiwan is the one that seems to get the most attention where, you know, I think maybe a couple of years ago, it sort of expanded a bit. And then I think last year's was a little bit less and there's there'd always be some some analysts out there that will read significance into that, but the, the the communique is long because it has to cover so many bases in, in part. And, you know, it, it has to call out Russia, it has to call out North Korea. And there is a bit of a an industry that develops around, you know, think tankers reading significance into the minute changes in language, which of course are officiated leading up to AUKUS quite closely by the two sides. But I do think we sometimes overanalyze the importance of the odd word change here or there. But yes, I mean, it's, it is just worth remembering that from a strategic communications point of view, Osmin is not a forum like the Quad, which is very much solely about putting forward a, a positive vision for the, for the region and, and deliberately tries to downplay a sense that it is some kind of defence partnership. 
you know, Osmin rests on a security treaty, uh, and these these are two closest lips and teeth allies that that have to be able to speak plainly about the threats that we face in this region, this region most notably from China. So, any slip in that language calling out Chinese coercion will be noticed, including by us here at Aspie. Look, I agree, and I think it it'll be a fine balance that they'll try to to strike. Obviously, with Blinken's recent visit to China, um, discussions about whether Albanese will or will not go to China later in the year, there obviously is a, a bit of a diplomatic tightrope that uh, both countries are trying to walk to improve relations, but also call out behaviour. I thought that the recent Vilnius summit's communique was quite instructive where they did directly call out Chinese coercive behaviour. I don't get the sense that Osmin 23 will go that far, but I might stand corrected. But I do think there'll be some key themes. It would be surprising not to see some conversation around the unsafe practices between military units in the South China Sea, some commentary around Indo-Pacific competition, Of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the support to it from the US and Australia, the support to Ukraine, will get a mention more in your area, but themes like the Pacific and climate security clearly get a mention. Forced posture initiatives, as I've mentioned previously, I think will be a key theme and hopefully a little bit more detail in terms of the practicality of some of those But look, it'll be interesting to see what comes out. I am glad to say there will be a part two of this podcast from Aspie early next week where Beck Shrimpton, the director of Destrat here at Aspie, and Ewan Graham, who has recently joined us from IISS, who has a lot of background with the Shangri-La dialogue that we have been speaking about, will come with part two to work out whether our predictions about Osmin 23 were correct or we were off the mark. Excellent. I look forward to that. Well, thanks for the discussion, Jen. No, thanks, Alex. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. Stay tuned for part two of this series where we will reflect on the outcomes from the meeting and look ahead to Osmin 2024. Thanks for listening.